I'm Mark Peterson, and this is Before, During, and After, a podcast from FEMA. On today's episode, we celebrate a great partner in emergency management. Joe Kelly, director of Minnesota's Homeland Security and Emergency Management for the last 11 years, will be retiring at the end of December. Like many who serve in emergency management, the last few years have brought many unique challenges. So today, we explore how Minnesota worked through those challenges during Joe's tenure, and he offers some valuable and innovative lessons for the future leaders of emergency management. Hey, we also had a couple of surprise guests during this recording. FEMA Regional Administrator Tom Sivak, Deputy Regional Administrator Mike Chesney, and also Minnesota's Public Information Officer Amber Schindeldecker all made short appearances during the conversation. This is a very special episode. It's an opportunity to uh, talk with Joe Kelly from Minnesota Homeland Security and Emergency Management. But more than that, our state emergency managers, our tribal emergency managers are really our closest operational partners. And Joe, thanks for joining me to talk about sort of your legacy as state director and what you have brought to emergency management throughout your career. So thanks, Joe. Well, thanks. And thanks for the opportunity to talk with you and, and talk with our, you know, my, my colleagues and counterparts across the country. Well, you know, in Region 5 obviously hosts the podcast, but we still have our regular jobs um, in the region to work with our six states around the Great Lakes, Minnesota being one of them. So it's really a delight to, to talk about this because I think you have such an interesting perspective over time that can share with our audience, emergency managers around the country about, you know, uh, not just what it means to work with FEMA and amongst our programs, but also, you know, really how we evolve the emergency management capacity in our states, in our local communities and our, our tribal communities and how we support them. So, uh, and you have great perspective on that. So thanks. Um, so, so Joe, maybe just to set the stage, tell me a little bit about your emergency management journey and how you became state director. Well, it's a long uh, journey. I think, you know, most folks are aware. I, I, I started professional life in, in the United States Army in the Minnesota National Guard as a soldier way back in, in 1980. Uh, and as I went through that journey at one point in time, uh, in the early 90s, I got transferred to the National Guard State Headquarters in St. Paul, and my assignment was to be the civil military operations guy. And I didn't even know what that meant, but what it ended up meaning was I was going to work with our then Division of Emergency Management to do the planning and the coordination and the relationship building for those times when the governor was going to call out the National Guard when there was an emergency um, in order to provide support to, to local authorities. So that was really my first touch with, you know, emergency management as I, as I came to know it. And that's now doing the math, Joe, about 28, 28 years ago. So over the rest of my career in the, in uniform, which was ended up being about 17 more years, I was in and out of positions where I came back to this relationship and these working with our division of emergency management. Uh, whether it was as the state operations officer, the chief of staff, the director of the joint staff, just kept running into these folks. So when I got ready to retire, and I worked with them continuously, spent a lot of time in the state emergency operations center during flooding. So um, when I when I retired from the army, the 
my predecessor, uh, Chris Eide, the director, said, hey, uh, if you haven't figured out what you're going to do yet, why don't you come work with me on a, on a temporary basis? I need somebody to do some project work on our new State Emergency Operations Center. Bear in mind, this is 2011. So I came here, I was working for a little bit, and our deputy director uh, had an opportunity to, to run our state investigative bureau. And Chris asked me if I was interested in, in being her deputy director. And I said, well, I think so, but, but let me ask you a couple questions. One is, you know, I've only been here a couple months. You know, I don't know what we do or how we do it. She said, well, don't worry about that. I'll teach you. I need some help leading, leading, uh, leading our state emergency management agency. And Chris was good to her word. I was her deputy for three and a half years. And when, when she retired, uh, I was blessed to be asked by uh, the commissioner of public safety uh, to, to be the division director, served there for four years, got a new commissioner, new governor, and was, was reappointed. So that's kind of how I got to this point in those years, as we were talking earlier today, there's a lot, there was a lot. There were uh, 15 uh, federally declared uh, disasters, and there are also now coming up on 69 uh, state disasters. And that's just on the natural disaster side. Of course, there's a lot of other things with radiological emergency protective or emergency preparedness programs and special security events and, of course, the pandemic and all kinds of things. So it really has marked, uh, it's been quite a ride. It sure has. And, you know, uh, just listening to your story, some of it sounds somewhat familiar to a number of emergency managers that I've spoken to um, over the years in that, you know, in FEMA, um, in state emergency management, a lot of um, uh, folks come from a military background. I wonder if you just maybe talk a little bit about how that is a, in some ways a natural fit, but also uh, maybe a fit that lends itself to successes in emergency management. I think it is a natural fit, and I've been I've been thinking about you know why because there's never a there's never a, a bias when we look at hiring folks, bringing them into our organization and the profession, but the but the military folks, people in military experience, seem to compete very well, and part of that is a couple of key things. The first thing is service. I think for those of us who have been in uniform, there's this vocational thing. In the 31 years I was in, uh, I was in the army. I don't know how many people said when I'd be like, Hey, why'd you become a soldier? Well, I wanted to be, I just wanted to do something for the, for the broader community, for our state and nation. I wanted to be something, be part of something bigger than, bigger than myself. So there's this, I think there's just this, this, I don't want to say genetic cause it's not, but there's this, this preference. I want to do something. I want to serve other people that attracts people to military service. And, and obviously that's what we do in emergency management as well. We're, we are trying to help people be ready. We are taking care of them during some of their worst moments and we are helping them get back on their feet during recovery. So that, that'd be the, the first thing. The other thing is when you look at some of the core competencies that it takes to be a good soldier, sailor, airman, Marine, Coast Guardsman, you know, we, it, it, it falls back to, I don't know, command, operations, logistics, finance, planning, that whole CFLOP acronym. Those are the very same, very same kind of structure that we have in the staff structure in the military. So when folks come and they have that experience, they have that competency and just 
the, that, that operational acumen. Um, they, they know how to write a plan. They're really good at coordinating logistics because they've done it in uniform. Those are the very same things. If you look at the incident management team or EOC org chart, it looks a whole lot like a, like a staff org chart uh, from across the armed forces. So I think people come with a lot of practical experience doing those, uh, those, kinds, of, those kinds of things. And then I, I guess I would then roll back to um, my, my own experience where when I was retiring, I thought from the Army, um, well, what do I want to do when I, what do I want to do with the next chapter? What do I want to do when I grow up? Spoiler alert, I never grew up. <laughs> um, and, and I looked at the private sector, you know, go make a, go make a bunch of money. Uh, I looked at nonprofits. I looked at government service. And for whatever reason that we all get pulled toward things, I got most attracted to and more, most pulled toward service. And, and, and again, I'll go back to that that conditioning that we have as members of the, of the armed forces, every single branch of the service has a value that sounds like service, selfless service in the army, service before self, all those things. And, and, and as soldiers, we define it as putting the needs of others ahead of your own. So again, I think those are the people that when bad things happen, they want to go help. You've all seen the commercials and you hear the stories, you know, who are these people that run toward? These, the, the devastation following a hurricane or a flood or a tornado or any kind of incident you can imagine. Who, who are those people? Well, there are people that want to help others and are willing to put their own needs, welfare, safety aside to do that. And, and that's not only what we do in the armed forces, that's absolutely what we do uh, in, a, in emergency management. So uh, it's, a very, it's a great question. It's a very natural fit. Like I said, there's never a bias. You don't get any bonus points because you used to be in the military, but I always feel really comfortable. We just had a, a, a new employee start today. And he was a, he was a master sergeant uh, in the army and the national guard. And, and, and he's worked with us before. And when I, when I met him again, I thought, I know what I'm getting. I know the character of this, this person. I know the, the character of these people because otherwise they, they wouldn't have, they wouldn't have, they wouldn't have served our country in uniform. Do you think there's a practical component too, um, in that, you know, at least for FEMA, our, maybe our closest response partner is DOD. And then your closest response partner is National Guard. Absolutely. Right? We just about wore the Minnesota National Guard out over the last uh, two and a half, three years. Yeah, I, I, I think there is. So there's some, there's some affinity and it has, it has served me well and my organization well over those last two and a half years, as we dealt with not only the demands pushed on our, put on our armed forces for the pandemic response with, with, you know, logistics for personal protective equipment, setting up testing sites, and then a vaccination center to include a very spectacular one visually here anyway, at this Minnesota state fairgrounds. It was, yes. Um, but, but it, it helped being, uh, knowing, knowing them. And understanding not one personally relationship wise, but just knowing who they are, what their capabilities are, and so forth, so that that close that close partnership is there. There's also just a lot of parallels on a practical level, as you asked, Mark, with the systems that are used um, to 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 operate, uh, you know, emergency management, disaster relief, disaster assistance, and so forth. I like to say, you know, I am proud. I was part of the Department of Defense for more than thirty years. You know, the, largest, most powerful military force ever assembled in the history of mankind. 
On the other hand, it's also one of the largest bureaucracies ever created in the history of mankind, and for good reason. And I think some of that acumen uh, with everything from procurement to planning to all those coordinating things coming from that military kind of background blueprint really does really does serve as well. Yeah, let's let's talk about um, a little bit of uh, what you uh, talked about there about the last couple of years, because it has been eventful, tragic on a number of different levels, natural disaster wise, but also when we've seen uh, the impact of COVID-19 and then also some civil unrest that Minnesota has dealt with. Um, So why don't we start off first with uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. And on this forum, in this podcast, we've talked a lot about the COVID-19 and different aspects of it. Um, But I think it's interesting for you to sort of capture the state emergency management coordination piece, because you all um, we're working very closely with your health departments and, and, and health agencies um, to bring everybody together. So talk to me about how, how those pieces came together and what was unique. I think what was unique, and, and I have a presentation called What I Think I Learned During the COVID Response. And one of the prominent slides is there's a picture of a pineapple upside down cake. Because I think the whole thing, our, our parameters, our, our paradigms, rather, of how we look at incident support and recovery and all that, is usually we're going to go in support of the local authorities. And they're in charge, and we're going to help them. And tell me what you need. We'll go get it for you. We'll try to figure it out. Well, this thing was kind of flipped upside down in that because of the complexity, the broadness of it, not, not Minnesota not just the United States, but it was a pandemic. It was a worldwide event. States had to assume a different role than they were used to. And with that came state government having to learn how to operate differently than it was used to. Usually it state government, state agencies just run down their alley. Department of Revenue collects taxes. Department of Education supports the schools, you know, and so forth. And all of a sudden, because it's just out of necessity, we had to work very much in an interagency way uh, as, as with the state driving the operation uh, in a way that we don't normally operate. So we, we, emergency managers, we know how to do that. We know how to build an incident management team. Uh, but a lot of the folks that we were dealing with never even thought about this stuff before. So one of the big upfront challenges was how do we get organized? And how do we make a how do we make an effective interagency team out of state government when that's not normally how they work? And how do we shift our thinking to not necessarily just support locals who are in charge dealing with a hazard, but us, for lack of a better, more graceful way of saying it, us calling the shots, the governor being in charge, uh, the, the state uh, public health director being the de facto incident commander. How do we do that? And it took it took us a while to get there. It's a little bit of a learning curve, right? Because you have unnatural partners, maybe. Oh, yep, yeah. very unnatural partners, and even all the you know the the, the you know, just take the cabinet. You know, they're all they're all on the governor's team, but they never really had to work together as a team. And it was really uh, kind of all hands on deck. Everybody had to come and help, and many of them had very natural roles. Obviously, the Department of Health was our uh, was the supported command, if you will. But then we got our procurement support from our Department uh, of Administration. Of course, the National Guard and the State Patrol did all the things that uh, 
that they normally do. But, and then we just pulled people randomly who had talent as individual human beings to come and fill roles because as we'll all appreciate, we had to make stuff up. Our department of health is not a public health service. They don't administer healthcare, but all of a sudden they were administering healthcare because we had to set up a testing program because until we set up a testing program, we wouldn't know who was sick or who was infected and there was no way to ever get our hands around it. So all of a sudden our department of health had to provide healthcare and, and not just in support of our normal civilian healthcare systems and hospitals, but running state sponsored state run sites. So that was just a, a big challenge having to kind of this, again, to go back to the military analog a little bit, this total mobilization of state government. I don't care what your day job is. There's no days anymore. We need you to come and work here because we're going to have to invent stuff. We're going to have to create whole systems in order to provide the support that, that, that Minnesotans need. And it was, it was tough. You know, the testing. Uh, and I, I don't know that I've asked this question before, but when you stood up your EOC, were you, was your data teams and your planning teams working through the, the information that was coming in to make decisions? Or how, how did that work? No. Uh, what happened, and I give uh, great credit to the governor's chief of staff, is they were trying to do this, this interagency coordination and, and you know, leaving HSEM, my agency, in the support role and running the SEOC. He, again, pulled in a lot of people, including some, some of, of our private sector partners that have those kind of data geniuses, because you need, as we all know, you need good information to make good decisions. And then we kind of we 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 took that and then we morphed it into the in into the into the EOC. We could talk for hours on uh, the COVID nineteen pandemic, but just in the in the recent years, uh, Minnesota has been faced with some tragedy here. Um, mm-hmm. And specifically, when we think about the tragic murder of George Floyd and the civil unrest that followed after that, what was unique about HSEM's role in in supporting the state through that? The whole thing was unique, Mark. And it was a, I don't want to overstate it. I want to understand. It was a seismic event. We're head down working in the EOC, doing everything we're doing. And all of a sudden uh, we have civil unrest of a scale that we've never encountered in this state. And there were, there was just a couple things like, all right, well, the pandemic was hard enough and now we have this, but we have to be able to do two things at once. Now, we, we, we subordinated the, the pandemic response a little bit because we had to really focus on the support that was needed to, to Minneapolis and the surrounding communities to keep the unrest from, from getting even worse. I'll never forget, as this thing becomes apparent, it was like 2.30 in the afternoon on whatever day it was, and I said, attention in the EOC. If you're here only to support the pandemic response, I need you to work remotely. I need you out of here by three o'clock because we got to deal with what's going on on the streets of Minneapolis. If you're part of the overall all hazards team, you're going to work here in the EOC, take a break. I'll see you back at three. And you go back to the previous part of the conversation uh, about the willingness of people to serve and put the needs of others. It was a very humbling uh, moment. Um, but I remember looking in the faces of those who were, who weren't packing up that those who were going to stay and help us figure out uh, what was next. And I was grateful. 
uh, and I was I was proud to be be working with them. You know, our roles for that the focus was a couple of things. One was uh, active, helping activate and support the Minnesota National Guard to go help local law enforcement. And it was supporting law enforcement. Uh, Commissioner Harrington set up a command post for law enforcement operations outside of the EOC. And we were providing support to not only the guard, but to, but to local law enforcement and our state law enforcement that was going, that was going to help. And I mean, by support, I mean, everything from trying to find non-lethal munitions and other things that they needed to, to be effective in crowd control and keep their officers safe to basic items like toiletries, underwear, um, things like that. The Minnesota state patrol turned around. Colonel Langer went on the phone, went on the radio and said, I don't care who you are, where you are, turn around, head to Minneapolis. So these guys came a true minute man fashion. And when they got there, they needed to be able to brush their teeth and change their socks and have a meal to eat. So we provided uh, a lot of support to that. Uh, on the other hand, one of the most interesting things, and I'm very proud of it, we also supported the people who wanted to voice their unhappiness with what was happening. Remember, the pandemic is going on. We're going to have 50 to 100,000 people protesting on the streets of Minneapolis tomorrow. We're like, how do we keep them safe? So we scarfed up 100,000 uh, cloth masks and distributed them through community organizers to have some sort of attempt to help keep the people who want to to, who want to exercise their rights to say how unhappy they are with this and be reasonably safe. So it was a very strange time, uh, if you will. Um, you, you know, I mentioned on the front end that we have a little bit of an audience here. We have our regional administrator from FEMA Region 5, Tom Sivak, and our deputy regional administrator, um, Mike Chesney. Um, and as, I, as we listen to you tell uh, a recap, these last couple of years and these incidents, I think we're all kind of hanging on every word because it's so interesting. And I, I'm trying to, I'm wondering, you know, from, from what you're thinking, what's the lesson in that? Is it that you need to prepare for the possibility of a dual event? Is it that no uh, support is too minor to have an impact? What do you think the lessons are in those sort of events that are not normally associated with emergency management, i.e. natural disasters, and having to respond to those? I think a lot of states did it a lot of ways, and we tried really hard. And I, I struggled hard to make sure that emergency management stayed in its traditional role and that we suddenly didn't anoint ourselves as, as I'm going to be in charge of the public health response because I don't know anything about public health, not compared to Commissioner Jan Malcolm, one of the heroes of that operation. So I think one of the lessons is let the people who are responsible for whatever this thing that you didn't see coming, help them be in charge. Uh, same thing with, uh, you know, with civil unrest. It was a law enforcement operation. Commissioner Harrington, you know, a licensed peace officer needed to, to, to set up a, a, a multi-agency command center to coordinate the response, let them be in charge. It was a, there's obviously always a temptation to, all right, this is an emergency. I'll take it. No, that, that, would, have been, that would have been a mistake because we have people that have the knowledge, the experience, the background, uh, the training and education on how to deal with whatever the thing is. They just need to be supported. 
and they're going to be in a place they've never been before. I'm sure Commissioner Malcolm had had no contemplation of her responsibilities as our state health commissioner being in charge of and responsible to not only the governor, but the people of Minnesota for all that stuff. And she and her agency weren't built for that. They're just, they're just not. So we needed to provide that assistance to them. But I, I, I tried really hard to make sure that we stayed in our lanes, that we, that we put things in the, in the doctrinal context and structure that we have under the national incident management system. And we had to ed- educate the cabinet about what is a policy group? What does a multi-agency coordination group do? Because that's, that's right now in this moment, what you have to do. And it got tricky, of course, when we're doing COVID on one hand and, uh, and the civil unrest on the other. So part of the lesson is when it all goes really bad and it's really weird and nobody saw this coming, don't, don't just crumple everything up and say, well, we're going to have to make it up. Go back to the anchors, go back to the doctrine, go back to the structure. Even if we have to teach people, train people, educate them in, in stride at the, at the end of the pandemic, as we tried to get ready for the next surge, which so far knock on wood has not occurred. We refocused that org chart. And I would tell you that we could use that org chart, the organization chart for state level support or running, running an incident. We could use it for anything. And that is one of the real things that came out of this is, again, th- that state government knew, kn- learned how to play intramural sports and work together. Not to jump in here, Joe, but I hear so many themes. Service. There's no greater service than public service. You talk about relationships. The relationships built will be put to the test. And then when we are put to the test, focus on the foundations and the doctrine. Adapt and overcome to any situation. Outside of the box problem solving. Uh, when you talk about the civil unrest events and being able to support. But one of the last things that I just kind of am hanging on is empowerment and trust in the teams as long as they're supported. And that's really the foundations and the coordination components of emergency management. And you just emulate that so well. So, you know, just thank you. That's it's amazing. I don't want to belabor, you know, sort of some of these recent events, um, because you've had in, an amazing amount of success in Minnesota with dealing with natural disasters and something specific to uh, one of our goals in, at FEMA, um, climate adaptation um, through mitigation and resilience. And I have to say, you know, in the time that I've been in Region 5, mitiga- Minnesota has done a tremendous job with mitigations, particularly along the Red River of the North, um, which has seen just a lot of historic flooding. What's the focus been? How have you um, sort of mobilized the state to focus on mitigation? Well, I think that the things, because we do have a, a, a lot of experience and, and the Red River is the one that gets everybody's attention. But we also have two other main river basins in Minnesota, uh, the Minnesota River, which feeds into the Mississippi River. And over time, um, there have been a lot of tremendous I'll call them transformational to, to use the jargon mitigation projects uh, in those in those areas. Um, and they have done exactly as advertised. They prevent future damage. The, the keys to that, of course, are, 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 are getting community buying and providing resources. When I, when I look at the, when I look at the future of, of mitigation, the, the barriers, it, it's almost like the, the 
the big ones are easy because we're going to have all kinds of people helping us. But the barriers for a lot of communities are they don't they don't have any experience in in planning. Even the, the county mitigation plans. Uh, you know, a few years ago, our state housing mitigation officer came up with a great idea because every county was struggling with how do we write a housing mitigation plan without spending our entire life doing it. So she created a pilot program working with the University of Minnesota at Duluth to have them kind of be a contractor, be the subject matter experts and, and help them with, with that. It, 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 so that, that getting rid of that obstacle of not having a good hazard mitigation plan and properly identifying the hazards within a jurisdiction so we know what to aim at, if you will, when those opportunities come up has gone a long way. The technical assistance then needed at the at the at the lower levels. How do you, you know, how do I build a project? How do I know, you know, what needs to be done in our community? There's a lot of help that's uh, that's needed there as well. the 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 last big challenge is is the cost share. Um, Minnesota is very generous with public assistance. We pay 100% of the uh, non-federal share for PA, and we have our own state. Uh, PA system, public assistance process, absent federal aid. But we don't c- contribute, we don't participate financially in mitigation as a state. We, you know, we get the resources from the federal government and the locals deal with the non-federal share. And for a lot of small communities, um, that that really is a barrier. But we more than anyone should know, based on our experiences in the Red River Valley and other places, we, we should know and we should do more um, to to invest in mitigation. So um, one of the things that our regional administrator, who happens to be here, uh, foot stomps all the time is the importance of preliminary damage assessments. And I, I mean, I feel pretty confident that Minnesota does a pretty darn good job with them. Um, we are up here as teammates with Minnesota, but um, uh, really they're generally done pretty efficiently. And what, what do you, uh, how do you communicate that amongst um, your partner local emergency managers to get the right information so that you can make this a smooth process? Well, we're a lot better at it than we used to be. Oh, and I want to say Mark, that in context, and, and, Joe, you, you've dealt with a lot of disaster. And, so, and, and I would say a lot of it though, is because in, in my time here, 15 federal, 68, almost 69 going on, working on number 69 state disasters are that state disaster program has given our staff and the locals a lot of practice in doing initial damage assessments, formal PDAs, project management, all that stuff. The, the other thing is we, we made a very deliberate effort uh, in our strategic plan to focus on it because we could see that, that, you know, we can't stumble around at the beginning of these events, especially when the clocks are ticking uh, for, the, for the process. So we made it an initiative um, to increase our capacity, our capability, our expertise in doing preliminary damage assessments and created uh, instructional classes, uh, encouraging, wouldn't say forcing, although I would love to, communities to do recovery exercises. You know, we do a lot of, everybody does response exercises. Boom, splash, whatever. Here come the lights and sirens. We set up the EOC, great. And then we all go home. Well, what about the part about putting the community back together? What about the part about figuring out how do we get state or federal disaster assistance? Because the reason you're asking the question is it's not automatic. And you have to be able to tell your story to the president or to the governor. And we do that through that preliminary 
uh, damage assessment. So we've been processed. So we've been pushing folks to do recovery exercises, if you will. We also know that for a local emergency manager to be successful, they have to have support from their local elected officials and other senior folks that they work with. So when I first came into this program, I into this role as the director, I went to the county and tribal big city guys and said, what do you need? Can you help our bosses understand what we do and how we do it and what we need from them? So we created this, this elected officials training program, one of which has an entire module dedicated to state and federal disaster assistance and the, the process and the role that they play, we play everyone. So it, it takes, I would say it, it takes, it takes intentional effort and focus. And we did that. It was, it is still part of our strategic, strategic plan. Sounds like some things we could probably bring to the rest of the, the partners. Once the, maybe a federal disaster is sought um, and then, uh, and, and then attained and approved by the president um, you, and you've had success with those and, and you've had several uh, during your tenure, but um, uh, two things jump out at me. One, uh, Minnesota was the first to have a state led uh, disaster. Um, so I want you to talk a little bit about what goes into that, but also uh, Minnesota has its own sort of um, other than federal assistance disaster process. And so that's that's remarkable. Not all states have that. Um, and uh, that's also really a great step towards the resiliency of the of the state itself. So I want you to talk a little bit about how that evolution of that program started and then also why maybe it is a natural evolution to do a state led disaster. Well, that that. We call it, you know, public disaster assistance, absent federal aid, came out of a, a lot of experience that we had in Minnesota. Obviously, we have a lot of federal disasters, but we also have a lot of small disasters. And what we've, what the legislature, to their great credit, went back and studied, because every time we'd have a small disaster, and there's no such thing as a small disaster, I get it when it's happening to your community, they said every time we have one of those, the legislature will will do a special session to authorize disaster assistance, but it was very ad hoc, if you will. It was very episodic and it was different, different amounts of funding and all that kind of thing. So they did a study and said, look, if we're going to always help each other, whether the feds are involved or not, we need to have a program. So they gave us that opportunity. The, the thing that I think is really paid off is I'm, I'm kind of lazy. So when they said, Hey, you got this program. I thought, well, uh, FEMA's already got a program. So I usually at this point in the process in that elected officials training, I hold up the Papa G and say, so this is FEMA's book for how they administer public assistance. It's my book too. Same standards, same rules, same requirements, same forms. We're going to always use the FEMA process. So even though we've had 15 um, federal declarations, we've used that process and that, that program guide 68 other times. So it like so that really flows. becomes yeah. a natural flow and they, and they, and they, they get it then it's not foreign. I don't have a different form if it's a federal versus a state. So it, in that too came the experience. So, you know, they always say experience is the most effective teacher. So now our, whether it's a township roads guy or the university of Minnesota, you know, they, they understand how the, how the process, how that, how that, how that process works. And I think that's really paid up for us. And it made the state-led opportunity that was pre presented a few years ago when we had our 
or not a hurricane state, but I declare that one as a hurricane because there were hurricane force winds, a 12-foot flood surge, and, and you know, damage to coastal, uh, coastal facilities. Um, it was very natural thing for us to do um, because we're, again, same, same process, same forms, everything. Now, we still obviously need FEMA support and not just if that was state led, but, but we still needed federal support, and not just the money, because we needed some engineering expertise to come in and understand how are we going to rebuild this going back to mitigation again? If we're going to rebuild these, these lakeside, lakeshore facilities like the Lake Walk, how are we going to do it so it doesn't happen again? So we brought in um, engineers that knew how to build shoreline revetments. Oh, I didn't even know what that was until we, we had this event. But to have it be state-led, I think, really made it effective for us. The, the beauty of state-led is, one, we're just doing the same process. But So they know the process. Our locals know us, and we know them. And going back to the comment about relationships, it, it really does help to have the folks that you know and are familiar with, you know, working with you and not just have someone else come in and run the, the project formulation and all that stuff differently because it's a federal disaster. So that was also the perfect incident for us to try this on because it geographically and from an applicant standpoint, it was, it was really, it was really focused. I'm a big fan of it. I'd love to do it all the time. I'd like to tell Administrator Sivak, hey, we got this, just send money. But it's, I know it's not that simple. Um, but by the way, we do appreciate the increase in program management cost formula that came into place a few years ago, because that is allowing us to establish our own reserve core, if you will, our own intermittent employee base, which allows us to, to supplement both state and federal federal disasters. I hope that we Minnesota will do more with those in the future. We might've taken a crack at one of these three federal declarations that we had this year to do another state led, except then we had the other two and it just became, it just became too much for us. And I don't know where we're at right now, six or 700 local applicants under those three, those three decks. So again, that's where we needed FEMA to come in and do their traditional role. Well, um, I think we could talk forever, uh, but um, you have a retirement to get to. And uh, so as you think about, God, I mean, like just in this this conversation, we've talked about a variety of different disaster and emergencies um, constantly changing. The environment's constantly changing. Um, our leadership constantly talks about how the landscape of emergency management and the things that we're called to uh, is constantly changing. What what are your sort of parting words for your colleagues, um, for your contemporaries, and for emerging emergency managers? Uh, where do we go from here? Well, I think we need to keep we need to keep going to that point, and I think we need to broaden our capacity. Without again, I'll go back to that the lesson I think we learned without trying to run everything just because just because it's an emergency, just because it's a disaster. And but what that means is we need to train, continue to train more people at state government and local government, tribal governments on how to take themselves with our support, how to take them through um, their next, their next really bad days. I, one, one of the slogans I use as I try to get elected leaders attention is people accept what I, 
a double C. They accept that stuff is going to happen. We know it's going to flood in Minnesota. That's not a surprise. We know there's going to be an ice storm. Nobody in Florida is surprised when there's a hurricane. They accept that those things are going to happen. We even accept that we could have, you know, a, a, you know, a tragic, you know, workplace or school, you know, violence. We, we, we get it. They accept that. What they expect, what an EX, is that somebody's going to have a plan. Someone's going to know what to do. Someone is going to come and help them. And that's what motivates me. And I know it'll motivate this organization after, after I leave it to make sure that we can meet that, meet that expectation. And the expectations are not going to go down as we get into the, you know, all the trauma and things associated with, with, with climate change and technological advancements, which mean technological vulnerability aging infrastructure, things are going to continue to happen in the expectations that local, state, tribal, um, federal government is going to know what to do and have a plan um, is, is daunting. So I would tell emergency managers, I think we need to not be shy. We need to tell our story. We need to say, well, if it isn't us that's going to deal with this thing, like happened in pick, pick, a, pick a state, if that happened here, if that's going to be us, I need more to do that. Um, going back to my roots in the military. Readiness costs money. Sorry to make this about money, especially at the end. But if you want to invest in preparedness, if you want to, to be ready, we have to, we have to make those investments and emergency management needs to be ready to take those additional resources on, tell the story and build it and and build it going forward because I I don't see the demand for the things that everybody that's listening to this podcast do are gonna go down. I just said in a recent interview with one of our our city newspapers, it's not gonna be another hundred years before we have the next human health pandemic on the scale of this one. Shame on us if we're not ready for it next time. Um we know what is happening with instability in the weather and in the climate. Shame on us if we only pay attention to our traditional uh, river basins and flood threats and we don't think about high-volume mega rain events that can happen anywhere. Shame on us if we haven't thought about what are we going to do if, if we lose power, communications, and transportation because because of a major ice storm, because now the as I like to say, the ice line is moving forward. So I think emergency managers need to help leaders and appropriators imagine, envision a future when bad things are, are going to happen and people are going to turn to them. Because this is not, this isn't, we're not going to enter a quiet period as far as I can tell. So I would tell us all emergency managers, be, be assertive. Uh, be confident in what we're telling folks is what's needed to meet that expectation, those expectations that are going to come in the future. So Amber sitting in the back, uh, very quiet. Does Joe have any Joeisms? Uh, yeah, Joe. Joe has many Joeisms. There's. <laughs> I'm having a bad day. <laughs> First, I get surprised by the regional administrator and his deputy, and now Amber's going to call me out in a podcast. This is great. You know, I I I think that there's one story that you tell specifically um, when you guys were called to uh, 
the tour in Afghanistan that really resonates with oh. me and your story of public service. And I would really love that if you could share with share that with everybody. I, well, thank you, Amber. It is one of the more humbling, it is the most humbling story I can tell about being a leader in the army. And it, I think it comes back to, I don't know if it was you, Mark, or Tom said earlier about, well, who, you know, who's going to go then? Who, who's going to be there if it's not, if it's not us? So I had the privilege of being uh, appointed as a brigade commander right around shortly after 9-11, 4,000 plus soldiers, whole combined arms team. And very early on after 9-11, as operations were happening in Afghanistan, we got the phone call. We knew it was coming. It was like, hey, uh, uh, we need one of your, we need one of your infantry companies. The first request is very humble. These guys are going to go to Afghanistan. They're going to go with this battalion from this other state. I'm like, okay, so I need to call the company commander and the battalion commander. But I started just going directly to the company commander, young young captain. I said, hey, Simon, um, I've got some I got some big news for you. So brace yourself. You guys are going to Afghanistan, and here's some operational details. Blah blah blah. I said, but on a on a personal level, I I want to tell you that. I, reg I regret this. I'm sorry, because this is going to change your lives, the lives of you, your soldiers, their families, their communities forever. So I was feeling kind of bad. I mean, I'm teeing up my first guys to go into, go into combat. And he, as only a great follower could do, he said, that's okay, sir. It's the life we chose. And I think that's so much true about these emergency managers. It's okay. It's a life we chose. We said we'd be emergency managers. We deal with our communities on their worst days. We'll go toward the flood, the hurricane, the shooting, the fire. It's okay. It's the life we chose. And I, I, again, it's those things that get me up and out of bed uh, and bring the energy that it takes to do these jobs. Cause these are hard jobs every day. And it connects back to that expectation that somebody expects that someone will be there, that someone chose the life of being there to help their communities through their worst times. Well, thanks for always being there, Joe, and uh, for the people of Minnesota and for the people of, uh, of the nation. Thank you. Well, thank you, Mark. I appreciate it. It's been a privilege to serve uh, almost 43 years between military service and now in emergency management. And people think I'm joking. And I say, look, I, I hold up the work we did as challenging. It was the, the people I've served with, they're on the same plane as any, anybody I served with in uniform, especially during some of these major events that we've, that we've had lately. So it is, it is indeed about service. You know, you've never heard anybody ever say, well, I'm going to go work for the army. No, I'm going to go serve in the army. And I hope folks don't think of, I'm going to go work for the Minnesota Division of Homeland Security and Emergency Management. No, you're going to come serve with us here in our state emergency uh, management agency. So it really has been a privilege. I appreciate the opportunity to prattle on about a few thoughts uh, as I as I do retire. I will I will miss this. There's a lot of stuff I won't miss because it's hard, but I'll but I will miss the mission and the work and the satisfaction, and of course all the people because just like the soldiers I serve with, I I authentically, honestly love the people that I've had the opportunity to have the, the privilege to lead and to serve right alongside. So thanks for the opportunity to tell a few stories and share a few thoughts. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Before, During, and After, a podcast from FEMA. If you'd like to learn more about this episode or other topics, or have ideas for future episodes, visit us at fema.gov slash podcast. Thank you.